on the programme from crossroads to centre stage dance as an art form in Ireland and American jazz pianist and composer Bertha Hope on her music and life. Hello and welcome to Arts Tonight. The social and cultural history of dance in Ireland is an area of increasing study. The National Dance Archive in the University of Limerick, an example of a new focus on dance in all its forms. We've looked at contemporary dance in Ireland on this programme on many occasions, most recently around the annual Dublin Dance Festival. Tonight we look at a recent book on the history of dance in Ireland and consider the cultural shift from dance as ritual and celebration to dance as art and artistic expression. The book is Barbara O'Connor's The Irish Dancing, Cultural Politics and Identities, 1900-2000, to a fascinating account of the role and development of dance in this country in the 20th century. With me in studio is Barbara O'Connor, author of that book, and also here to discuss dance in Irish cultural life are Professor Luke Gibbons of the English Department at NUI Maynooth and Paul Johnson, Chief Executive of Dance Ireland. Barbara O'Connor, to start with yourself, the larger theme of, of your book is the role of dance in Irish cultural politics and identities in the 20th century. And that aspect of, of dance in modern history is one that has been considered in other programmes like the History so, Show. So I suppose today I want to concentrate on dance as more as a cultural and artistic expression. And that seems to run very deep indeed in, in Irish culture. But there is this, as you say, contentious claim that there was no dancing in Ireland until the coming of the Normans in in the 12th century. Tell me a little bit about about that concept and whether or not there is any veracity in it. Uh, well, as you say, it is contentious. And uh, Brendan Branagh is the, you know, the dance scholar who drew our attention to that. And... Uh, Indeed, what I would argue is that dance, there is dance in every every known society. Now, whether it's, I think it's an issue of categorisation, really, and that dance, it could be called something else, which I think it was, uh, you know, jumping, lame, you know, all of, all of those words. But I think uh, the... Um, you know, mistaken belief that dance only came to Ireland, you know, in with the Normans was the fact that the word itself, uh, the two modern words for dance, rinka and dousa, were derived from English and French, you know, respectively. Uh, but in fact, in a way, you could argue that, uh, you know, with the Normans, you had an administrative system that was a written, you know, with written records. So we do have more written records from that period on. So we do have, I mean, what I would say is that, you know, dance may be called, there's dance in every society, but it may be called something else. And that there are a number of elements to dance. And that when we categorise dance, we tend to divide it into three kinds of categories, really ritual dance, dance as leisure and dance as an art form and an aesthetic form. And indeed, they're all intertwined, I would argue, but that in modern times that the aesthetic has become more prominent so that we now have, and it's with the, uh, I suppose, differentiation of, of, of society uh, into particular spheres and that, you know, we have the artistic sphere and we have theatre dance and we have ballet and we have contemporary dance. Whereas if you go back to, um, you know, the ritual dance. And for instance, we're coming up nearly to the midsummer, Ihenevon, uh, where you have the dancing and the bonfires, uh, where you have all those elements, but the ritual element is probably the most important one there. But you still have the aesthetic element and, of course, you have the leisure element. And, of course, I suppose especially ritual uh, and art form can coincide uh, very much to yes. to create new new art forms. Um, and, and we'll talk about that in a little bit in the early days of the Abbey Theatre and the 
the attempt to use ritual in forging a, a new aesthetic. But I remember many striking references to, to Irish dancing in Owen Burke's marvellous book, Poor Green Air, and um, German travel writers, the Counts of Ireland and Irish life of the early 19th century. And there's one extraordinary account of a young man dancing himself into a frenzy and to a point of collapse. I think it was somewhere in Limerick and uh, yes, at, at a crossroads. And you reference in your book other travellers in Ireland, people like mm-hmm. Arthur Young, who comment on what seems like a really strong attachment to dance among the poor. Mm-hmm. Is there though enough evidence to assert that dance is a particularly strong aspect of Irish cultural identity um, over many centuries, possibly going back, as you say, to pre-Norman times? Yes, I think so. I mean, I'm thinking of Arthur Young's uh, work, A Tour Tour of Ireland in the 1770s. And certainly he makes lots of references to dance. And he says that, you know, dance was universal in in every cabin. So that, you know, he was really struck by the proclivity of the poor, you know, for dancing and music and merriment. Um, He also talked about, you know, the kinds of dances they did. And he talked about the fact that, you know, a Sunday wouldn't go by without having a dance. And of course, that ritual occasions like, you know, weddings and so on. So, yes, I think there is evidence to suggest that uh, dance was very important in in Irish culture. Uh, I think it's interesting he talks about it as amongst the poor. Now, again, I think maybe that has been used to, you know, as part of a, uh, even though uh, Arthur Young himself, I think, was very well disposed towards, you know, towards the Irish, uh, unlike other you know, uh, British writers of the time. Uh, but it has been used almost as a stereotype of the Irish as being feckless, you know, as as not working, as spending too much time maybe, you know, in merriment and amusement and singing and dancing and drinking and so on. Luke Gibbons, um, it's interesting to see dance feature as a metaphor for freedom or a longing for free expression in Ken Loach's recent film, Jimmy's Hall. And I have to say that it didn't didn't all quite work for me. Uh, The scene of the 1930 Crossroads dance somehow seemed a little bit hokey and it all seemed somehow maybe a little bit easy or, or simple. And I wonder if there is a danger of dance becoming almost too easy a symbol uh, for for Irish cultural and Irish cultural identity, not necessarily just here in in this film, but but in general, that it becomes perhaps too easy for artists to latch on to dance and say, here here are the Irish expressing themselves. Well, you could argue that um, in Jimmy's Hall, what is brought out in a very interesting way is that often the opposition to jazz and the opposition to modern music is bound up with indeed dance and I think part of the frenzy in the modern period was the jitterbugging and the idea of the body out of control and this was a fate worse than death to the authorities but I think there's a tendency sometimes and particularly when jazz comes into it to portray it as a struggle of tradition versus modernity whereas what really needs to be brought out is this was a struggle within modernity the forces who were contesting jazz, the forces who were against modern music were also within the modern world. In other words, they were international. It wasn't from County Leitrim alone that the campaign against jazz started. The campaign against jazz was an international campaign. And sometimes there's a tendency to portray the kind of, um, you know, the resistance to jazz or the resistance to modern music or to dance as some kind of backwards 
In fact, it's, it becomes too traditional. It, it goes back to before the Normans. Whereas in point of fact, it was coming in from the deep south in America. It was coming in from American fundamentalism. The Rosary priest was Irish, but he was bringing in his crusading from the United States. So this and the link between, we'll say, dance and subversion and dance and, if you like, breaking the bounds of social control. That, again, was not just an Irish... Um, so you would argue as well that in in a film like Jimmy's Hold, dance is used effectively as as a symbol of of subversion to a certain extent, and and that potential expression of of, of freedom. Right, and one of the interesting things too is that while it is true that you get dance portrayed as utopian desire in films like Dancing with Lunasa, actually, if you look at the way of dance is portrayed in Irish cinema and Irish fiction, it often becomes the point of conflict. It's often on the dance floor. Indeed, in the bottom of romance, the showdown between Bowser and Bridie takes place on the dance floor. The most famous one is on the dance floor in The Dead, the altercation between Gabriel Conroy and Miss Ivers. So I think that is getting at a very interesting part of dance in Ireland, that dance does have this utopian, imaginary community as part of it. But also dance contains within itself the fractures and the breakdowns in Irish society. And it's wonderful how Irish playwrights and dramatists and filmmakers have caught the tension. And indeed, in Jimmy's Hall, the dance hall becomes the site of community on the one hand, but it becomes the flashpoint of contention on the other. Conflict on the other hand. Uh, Paul Johnson, dance as an art form in Ireland then. Um, Can we begin at all to put a dateline on when dance made this transition from social event and ritual uh, to a kind of more formal and recognised form of art and artistic expression. I presume we're we're largely talking about the early days of the the Abbey Theatre, the National Theatre, and then 1920s, 1930s, the beginning of um, a modern dance movement in the country. Well, I suppose... we, we can date it from, from uh, as you say, from the Abbey uh, School of Ballet, which is uh, come, which was formed in in the um, the late nineteen twenties, and then uh, subsequently there have been pockets of professional activity throughout uh, uh, subsequent uh, decades. But I suppose if if, if you're looking, I, I, I suppose the late or mi- middle. Um, 1970s would be recognised as a time, as quite a significant uh, turning point for the professionalisation of all forms of dance, not just uh, ballet, uh, but the introdu- I suppose the more uh, formalised introduction of traditional Irish dance as an art for, as, as an art practice, and then uh, the, the growth and development of contemporary dance at the same time. You know, we, we think of a figure like Joan Denise Moriarty and her work with the Irish National Ballet coming out of, of her own Cork Ballet Company, but of course there were many remarkable figures who helped shape ballet and contemporary dance in this country from, I suppose, the 19, as you said, 1920s, 30s on. Uh, a figure like Irina Brady, very important, and Deirdre Mulrooney's done invaluable work on her story. But um, I was in Limerick University recently and it was it was great to see this uh, National Dance Archive and the work they're doing in bringing all of these strands together and beginning to put a coherent shape on a narrative around the history of, 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 of Irish dance. And it's, it's terrific to see that. Um, to to the point today where there are these so many really really good contemporary dance companies, um, and we'll come back to the issue of, of funding in relation to this. Uh, but um, that 
that history right through. As you said, the 19, 1970s, 1980s, a bit of a turning point in terms of new companies, new choreo- young choreographers, uh, companies, dancers emerging that, that have forged a really lively scene now. Yes, and, and and I suppose that it, 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 it it's a forty year period that we're talking about. So um, regardless, th- those people who were introduced uh, to um, th- theatre dance as as an art practice in, in the seventies are still working now today in the noughties and um, and are working very very successfully. But the seeds of of that, that development uh, came about because of um, and this is I suppose a hallmark of the development of of professional dance in Ireland. It were a number of of international uh, artists relocated to Ireland and introduced uh, the forms, and out of that, then uh, those uh, the students that um, I suppose they encountered then went on and, and developed um, careers out of that. So, so it's, it's, it is it's, it's an interesting phenomenon, um, uh, you know, that it took that it, it, it was an external force that uh, I suppose sparked the, the 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 interest, and then out of that, then uh, uh, quite a number of uh, as you say. Uh, Interesting uh, choreographers and dance makers have evolved. How important was something like the Dance Council of Ireland, and then obviously it, critically, I presume, funding infrastructural funding from from the Arts Council, for example. <laughs> They were phenomenally, uh, significantly important because it, it was an agency that lasted for approximately uh, nine uh, or, or, or ten years. But during their, their 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 time, what they did do was they introduced um, platforms, they introduced choreographic workshops, they nurtured um, a, a generation of um, dance makers by uh, by I suppose challenging uh, the, 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 the by by challenging them to make work and creating opportunities for them to experiment. Barbara O'Connor, of course, we can't ignore uh, the power of river dancing in in all this. And in your book, you rightly make it central uh, to the movement of Irish dance onto the world stage in the late 20th century. Um, Within it, so much of what's real and imagined and constructed and popularised and and maybe sometimes simplified. Uh, But perhaps most interestingly, uh, its power and impetus coming from a mix of the diaspora through the brilliance of Michael Flatley's performance and the latent power of old forms at home. And it has been very important in how we look at and how we at home regard Irish dance and how it's regarded internationally. Yes, I mean, river dance, uh, we all know, uh, uh, is uh, one of the most successful, probably the most successful commercial uh, theatre perf- dance performances of Irish dance ever. Um, but I think, you know, I mean, in the book, I actually talk about the different reactions mm. to river dance. And uh, I think that's important. At one level, I look at it. And again, it's this kind of um, um, involvement with the exuberance and the brilliance and the absolute virtuoso performances, you know, of the lead dancers in it. And it's absolutely you know, hair raising, as they say, you know, the back of the neck uh, at one level. But then for me, as you know, my personal response was that over the years, it became blasé. It became churned out on, you know, daytime American television. Uh, You had the cloning of it on, you know, the ferry between Sweden and Denmark. It was all over. So 
actually it got a bit much and a bit boring. So and I think, you know, that was the, um, you know, the, really the commercialization and globalization uh, and that that aspect of it then became dominant because the, the interval, I think it was the interval Eurovision Act, which was only seven minutes, that was actually the most uh, exuberant, the most brilliant performance of Riverdance. I would argue that uh, because and partly because I think the audience in the the point, as it was at the time, were also aware of international television cameras. So I think everyone was aware of, again, going back to an international audience of the millions that were looking at it uh, and that it, you know, was part again of the, you know, the, the, the kind of lauding of it, the, you know, the success of it and, and so on and that, you know, standing ovation and so on. But having said that, and it is about partly to do with, you know, the knowledge that there is this big audience, uh, but it is partly to do with that uh, visceral, I suppose, response uh, of this absolutely, you know, just wonderful, exuberant um, performance. And Paul Johnson, that I think that exuberance probably ultimately helping Irish dance. Significantly. And, and, and just to add to what Barbara has just said, the, uh, the, the other major contribution of Riverdance is that it, it allowed artists like Colin, De, um, Colin Dunn, Jean Butler and Brendan de Galley to go, to, to, to go on and make very, very interesting uh, hybrid innovative work that combines, that, uh, that actually didn't, uh, you know, I suppose incorporated their, their traditional Irish dance history with uh, contemporary forms. And I think that's its other major uh, significant contribution. Absolutely, because I think the work that Colin Dunn and, and uh, Jean have been doing is, is some of it is, is astonishing. It's, yeah. it's, it, it, Luke, it's very interesting. It, it, Barbara, again, in, in the book, talks about these very different reactions uh, to Riverdance. Some people saying it's crass commercialisation of local tradition and culture, and others then that, that it's a fresh and almost postmodern moment of inevitable cultural collision and change, making something new. And I was fascinated <coughs> by this concept of localization uh, which Barbara refers to you know the, in relation to all this uh, the taking of of the local of something that that's inherent culturally and particular to a place and it becoming almost an, an international product it's a really interesting one yeah and you can see uh, river dance being a good metaphor because you can see the different streams of modernity um, if you like emanating from different sources and going in different directions and I think when Paul was saying if you look at the work that Colin Dunn and Jean Butler have done out of Riverdance that is the expressive capacity of Riverdance that was the potential that was within Riverdance and you see the remarkable work they're doing but again Colin Dunn and Jean Butler is wonderful uh, performance dance on dancing on dangerous ground that did not have one element which the Michael Flatley element has which is spectacle so the other strand is the Midas touch of modernity, by which I mean the, the role of spectacle, the Andrew Lloyd Weberization of Irish dance. And that was bringing the potential river dance in a different direction, into mass spectacle. And that would be, again, where the Midas touch actually kills, if you like, the life in it, as far as I'm concerned, as against the wonderful uh, developments that... Jean Butler and that Colin Dunn and others have brought out. So I would see Riverdance showing, going back to what I was saying earlier, that these are struggles and conflicts within the modern. They're not just the local versus 
the international. They're not just the traditional versus the modern. These are actually fractures within modernity itself. And, and indeed, there's no doubt that the Michael Flatley version, you know, has the mass appeal and it has the exact... Lord of the Dance and all the... Yeah, and it, has a, and, and, and it has the Andrew Lloyd Weberization appeal and, and more power to his elbow or to his feet. To his power. But, but nonetheless, it, it shouldn't take away attention from the other developments. The role's not taken. And these are, are remarkable. And they're still... Uh, what's remarkable is that this has enlivened and it has brought traditional Irish dance into dialogue with modern dance. Because up to... And maybe Paul can say something about this. Up to, we say, the 1970s, 70s or 80s, they were not quite on the same stage. Uh, but what has happened because of river dances, I think there's a kind of vernacular modernism and that Irish dance has been brought into very productive dialogue with contemporary dance, going back to what Irina Brady and others were doing. We so so again, you, see, you, you saw you know, Shanlow's dancing in the Albert Hall as, as part of, of the concert there when President Higgins was, was in London. And uh, so you, I think, again, you see the potential with the, for these new art forms uh, being, being made out of, out of those sorts of meetings, as, as Luke is saying. Would you be very conscious of that, Paul, of, of the potential, you know, when you, you see what you know, people like Colin and Jean have done but also what um, a young dancer like Joseph von Yachtun is doing in, in relation to, to, to Shannos, you know, the, the new forms that may be made uh, with these meetings. Yes, and, and, and we will be, we'll be very conscious about trying to nurture that and, and develop that. But you, may, you, you mentioned Joseph and I suppose he, he, he's quite also interesting to talk about because he, he is still staying true to his own tradition. You know, he, he isn't, um, and, I think, and I think for audiences, for, for modern audiences that they appreciate that and they they can see it for what it actually is rather than you know he he's not donning um a shiny shirt and um yeah, it's not becoming localised. Yeah. Uh, can I just add there to, to what Paul is saying? Uh, Catherine Foley in Limerick uh, talks about the one of the, um, I suppose, impacts of river dance as again enabling uh, and reviving, if you like, the, the Shannos tradition, which had been very marginalised within the, you know, the concept of, you know, national Irish dance. Uh, and I think that's very interesting. But another thing that strikes me is that Shannos traditionally, at least, you know, in the the 90, up to the 1960s and so on was very much a male activity and now I love seeing you know all the young women in Connemara getting up and, and so I think actually it's not just enabling in terms of dance forms themselves but that the people who participate and particularly I think for women uh, to be involved is is great and, and you know so I, I think it's you know it's, it's, it's extending itself and moving and in, in all kinds of directions, you know, and, and in innovative ways. Um, the meeting, something again you, you touch on in relation to, to Riverdance is the, the meeting of Irish and African-American cultures in 19th century New York and mm-hmm. the way that is represented or not represented in, in, in Riverdance. You know, um, mm-hmm. Some critics uh, feeling that it missed the true potential of that cultural and human meeting and and exchange and um, Mick Maloney in NYU you know has been working on this and writing a book on on it with Lenny Sloan choreographer and dancer uh, which I'm sure in time will will bring us many very interesting stories but um, it those again you know Luke you you've been looking a little bit at at this whole area um, and uh, again I suspect that there is enormous potential uh, within this strand of of cultural history uh, that that will be explored. In in many forms, including dance. And I suppose the key word 
there would be cultural crossings. And we have a tendency to think that globalisation started in 1963 or with the Beatles or whoever. And we need to really go back and look at our own history. And indeed, a lot of the rhetoric of indigenous Irish culture, the purity of Irish culture, needs to be re- revisited. It was not at all so pure. The Blasket Islands were as much part of... The, 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 Valen- the, Valen- the cable went to Valencia Island. The Blasket Islands were in trade with Paris. So, And more, more Blasket Islanders were living in Springfield, Massachusetts, than were living on the islands. And we need to go back and look at how global and how much cultural crossings were part of culture in Ireland, including the visitors coming to Ireland that you mentioned earlier, the German visitors, Arthur Young. So the idea that Irish culture was in a cocoon and that this kind of external threat of of modernity or globalisation kind of disrupted. And indeed you've talked about the, the great response to Paul Robeson when he visited him. Indeed, and that's one of the most remarkable things, that notwithstanding the animus uh, against communism, Robeson did not push the right buttons when he came back from Moscow and gave an exclusive interview to the Irish worker and extolled the glories of education under the Bolshevist regime. And indeed, the amazing thing is that notwithstanding the condemnations of Robson, he was revered in Ireland and his recording of Kevin Barry, allegedly given to him by Pather O'Donnell, when Pather O'Donnell was hitching on a road in America, which is hard to believe, and a, a limousine draws up, and it turns out to be Paul Robson's limousine. So Paul Robson brings Padre O'Donnell in, and O'Donnell allegedly gives him. Um, I mean, I, I think this story belongs to the Devil at Dancehall stories. <laughs> it's a kind of an urban legend, but it's too good not to miss. But nonetheless, Robson did have this Guardian engagement. <laughs> and Robson did, did have this engagement with national cultures with subaltern cultures and that's what's remarkable about the, if we go back and revisit the 1930s and 40s and 50s you know how, how open Ireland was Yeah I, I'd just like to come in there as well uh, when you're looking at some of the references to dance say from the 1400s and 1500s again they're the same dances well there's the Irish jig but jigs were being danced in England and France and everywhere else and uh, the hay the trench moor all these you know the same kind of so Irish dancing was very much part of dancing you know in Europe all over Europe at the time and indeed then the set dancing became especially from you know from France through Britain and the British military in Ireland uh, so there's always been it's always been global and it was really only with the uh, I suppose really the, during the revival this attempt to you know eliminate anything foreign and to sanitize Irish dance and to make it into something so-called pure authentic and and so on so again it's it's and you know, that debate was going on within the Gaelic League from a very early stage. But the Gaelic League itself was again quite open in the in the beginning, as it were, and was being very much influenced by the philosophers, cultural history and philosophers from Europe. So, but it, it gradually, it was became more closed down. And, you know, and that's, you know, by then the Dance Halls Act of 1935, dance was totally controlled. Paul Johnson, um I suppose, you know, there will be new work. Uh, Things are in this constant change of evolving and yet the state of evolving. And yet they can't evolve without support 
again, infrastructure, funding. Uh, and it is a strange time. I mean, there's probably never been more written about dance uh, and more attention paid to the history uh, of, of dance in Ireland. And yet it's also a time when there are huge cuts to funding uh, of, of dance groups. And even some of, of, I suppose, the most established and innovative dance groups are, are struggling to survive uh, in, in the face of some of those cuts. So it, 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 is, it is a kind of strange limbo time in a way. Uh, and how do you read that situation? Uh, on the one hand, a lot of attention and dance constantly, as we've been talking about, uh, put forward as this metaphor for, for Irish culture. On the other hand, the reality here at home for companies struggling to make new work, really hard time. As you say, it is a difficult uh, time for, for dance artists, uh, but nevertheless, uh, uh, from my perspective, a huge amount of work is still being made. Um, uh, audiences are growing, um, and I suppose more and more now, a, 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 a dance work will have a, a quite a long life, and, and it, it will, um, I suppose we are encouraging uh, artists to, to think more, more, more creatively about you know, a touring life. Life of a work, but I suppose one of the the, the very interesting uh, big developments uh, and how uh, we we see uh, professional dance uh, theatre work uh, surviving is um, looking to Europe and and the international and more and more our artists are collabor- collaborating uh, and accessing uh, support internationally and and that's one big um, uh, positive development. But but regardless, you know, it, it, of course it is challenging uh, at the moment, but it is cha- also challenging for everyone. Um, and as, as you know, it, it is. It's very much um, throughout the country. There are uh, agencies and uh, networks evolving, which are, are 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 working together more collaboratively to to create uh, opportunities to 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 for, 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 I suppose for, to enable people to to maintain their uh, their, their practice or, the, or their career. So I wouldn't you know, it's not all doom and gloom. Um, of course, it's tight, but I think more and more uh, um, people are finding. Quite interesting new collaborations um, across uh, art forms, and then, as as I mentioned earlier, internationally. So, so there are there is hope. Dancing on a on a, a shoestring or a tightrope to make a world, uh, as as people do so effectively. Uh, Paul Johnson, Barbara O'Connor, Luke Gibbons. Thanks to all of you. And the Irish Dancing Cultural Politics and Identities, nineteen hundred to two thousand, is published by Cork University Press. Coming up, American jazz pianist and composer Bertha Hope ahead of her appearance at the Galway Arts Festival. Welcome back to Arts Tonight.
the sound there of American jazz pianist Bertha Hope with her own composition Prayer for Sun Ra. Bertha Hope is a major figure in modern jazz as a composer, an interpreter and a performer and she'll be playing at the Galway International Arts Festival next week. Married to the legendary B-pop pianist Elmo Hope whose musical legacy she's fostered since his early death in 1967, Bertha Hope is a regular at the famous Minton's Jazz Club in Harlem in New York and she has performed widely in Europe and in Japan. More recently, she's been working with the Irish singer Mary McPartland, reinterpreting blues standards and some Irish songs. And we'll hear about that later. I've been talking to Bertha Hope in advance of her gig in Galway. She began by telling me about her upbringing in Los Angeles and the force of music in her life from childhood on. My father was what they call a dramatic baritone who came along at the same time in history as uh, Roland Hayes and Paul Robeson. And uh, although those two men uh, gained much more fame than he did, he was an excellent performer. He had a wonderful voice. And he did all of the same venues that they did all around the world. So um, he brought that joy of music uh, into our lives very early. So I learned uh, very early to play the piano and to play for him, uh, to exercise him, to play the solfege as he warmed his voice up, and uh, to learn how to play uh, music for church uh, concerts, mostly the what were called the Negro spirituals. Uh, and so from the time I was about three, in fact, my father gave me my first paycheck. It was $7 for playing for a concert, and I think I was about 12. Just so probably quite about, a lot of money then. <laughs> yeah, well, it was. It was 1948. So that was a lot. And it was a big thrill for him to um, to pay me for it. I would have been glad to do it for nothing. But for him to sort of spur me on, he 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 paid me. So and then my um, my mother was an opera lover, and a, a dancer who wanted uh, one of her dreams was really to come back uh, and start a school in St. Louis for dancers for young black girls. Uh, but she also loved opera. So we gathered around the old Philco radio uh, on Saturday afternoons to listen to the Met from New York. And she knew all the libretto, and she would tell us what the stories were and uh, that it was all really make-believe that if that soprano was able to hit a high C, she couldn't be dying of consumption. You know, she made it a real thing for us. But it was an activity that we all looked forward to, to sit around the radio and listen to the Met from uh, broadcast from New York. So I had a wide variety of, in in my house, there was a wide love of, of a wide variety of music that was... Um, cherished by my parents and so all of the children listened to that. I had one sister and one brother and we all took piano lessons 
And you, I think, began to play piano very, very early at, at about the age of three. And did you know early on that this was this was the instrument for you, the, the one that you would carry most deeply in your life? You know, Vincent, I, I don't think so. I I had a really great experience in school, too, with all of the instruments. That I, mm. I shouldn't say all, but a wide variety of, of instruments. Um, in from the sixth grade to the twelfth grade, I was exposed to clarinet, violin, viola, cello, um, all of the percussion instruments of a symphonic orchestra, and how to read all of those parts, and to run from one uh, instrument to the other and be a total percussion session by myself. Um, so I don't, I, I got exposed to a lot, but there was a piano at home. There weren't very many other instruments at home until my brother started to play flute and trumpet. And then there were those instruments, but they weren't considered, uh, uh, that the flute, uh, girls could play the flute. The trumpet was unheard of. But uh, early on, I found out I had this musical ear, and I could pick out music on the radio and go to the piano and play it. So uh, the popular songs of the day were really in my my musical vocabulary kind of very young. I was able to play them because I could hear all of the chords. So... Uh, when then did you become the, really alert to jazz as 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 a music that would perhaps become the one closest to, to your heart? I mean, I, I think that Bud Powell was was a, a big early influence. Yes, that was, that happened when I was in high school. Uh, I was about fourteen or fifteen, and there were a group of young boys who were really interested in. Jazz. They weren't listening to the same music that all the other kids were listening to. And I fell in with them because I was also listening to Duke Ellington and Billie Holiday. And um, we formed a kind of a listening club and a, and a music trading club. We would trade our LPs uh, back and forth. And then I heard Bud Powell about 15, and that was a real turning point even in my listening because uh, he introduced uh, such a different element to uh, to chord structure and to timing and to the, the uh, rapid-fire right-hand technique with twists and turns and... Uh, accents in places that were uh, unexpected. So that was uh, that was the music that really, really grabbed my ear. And of course, the so other music that the other music that really grabbed your ear and and grabbed your life uh, was the music of of Elmo Hope. Um, uh, you you married him. Uh, you worked together, and and uh, your album Hopeful from 1961 is, is regarded very much as a classic. Um, he a master of of bop or hard bop styling. How how would you describe his music and his influence on on modern jazz? 
Well, I think that he, along with uh, Thelonious Monk and Bud Powell, were really uh, the piano architects, I think, of uh, that that emerging music that that came to be called uh, Bob, um, because they were able to take uh, the elements of swing and um, and use them with a different rhythmic force and also the sound of agitation. I think they, uh, they were able to sort of master that and uh, bring it to be the basis on which a lot of the other harmonics grew. Uh, in terms of piano, I think the three of them... Uh, since they played together a lot in each other's homes and shared an awful lot of information that they, um, together, without knowing it maybe, um, were able to introduce uh, the foundation as it would be uh, built upon for piano players from that time forward, for pianists. It's interesting because I interviewed uh, Ahmad Jamal a few months ago and he talks of of jazz music as the classical music of America. I think you'd very much share that opinion and and you feel, I think, that jazz isn't given sufficient recognition or support and and should be a much greater part of music education in schools and colleges. Yes, I do. I think it's one of America's tragedies that this music is imported or imported to other places in the world, exported uh, by us. Uh, But one, I think 3% of uh, our listening public um, listens to and supports jazz actively. That is, they go to concerts, they go to clubs. So we haven't used um, this wonderful music as our treasury for real. You know, we've designated as such, but we haven't honored it as such. That is when I say we've designated as such, there's a, there is a, um, uh, I think a standing resolution by Congress that jazz is a national treasure. Uh, But the treasurers are are not uh, treated so well, and the people are really denied the opportunity to understand that this is a classic music. It is America's classical music. It was born out of the the union between. Uh, Europe and America and its and what it produced, which was slavery, but this music uh, married the best of both of those um, musical elements and has survived. People keep talking about it being dead, but it's not dead. It's very, very much alive and still evolving. So I hope that I am able to live long enough to see that every child in America 
knows this music and appreciates it and gets to learn something about it in a very formal way. Your own work as a composer, uh, you say that you, you truly hear music almost every day. How much of that music do you get to set down? And what do you think inspires the music that you do write? Well, you know, really, I get a, an opportunity to write down very little of it. I've really gotten to the point now where I can write more and where I can, uh, because the technology, preserve more. I have a kind of a tape recorder going on in my head almost all the time, Vincent. I think it helps me to tune out some of the other elements in uh, in a life that I in the world, you know, things that would keep me um, more plugged into other things that the music helps me prevent them from crowding my brain too much. <laughs> so I am writing a lot more now than I used to um, and, and capturing it. Um, and I and my writing has changed also because I think my playing is evolving in a different way, and there are other elements that I've added to it that that were not there before. So it's an important thing to be able to leave your your thoughts um, on paper, and I'm beginning to value that since I um, I'm not a, a, a a scholastically trained composition uh, student, you know, I'm, I'm learning uh, as I listen, I'm learning as I play, and I'm sort of self-taught with a series of books from different uh, people who know more than I do about it. Let's hear a little of, of one of your compositions. This is from Going to See Tea. from Going to See Tea by Bertha Hope. Bertha, tell me a little bit about, about that, that particular piece. Um, who is the tea of the title? Well, the tea of the title is Thelonious Monk. And um, it refers to uh, just visiting him. Uh, Elmo and I uh, live nearby and we, we did spend a lot of time uh, in his home, and so um, I just wrote that song, and in my mind, I was dedicating it to uh, some of what he has left 
me with. And I just wanted to capture it on on uh, paper. Is the jazz scene in, in the US a very male scene? One sometimes gets that impression, but maybe maybe that's wrong. I mean, is it is it tough for a woman to break through and, and hold her place in, in jazz? Oh, I think it's very tough. It's just as tough in jazz as it is in in uh, other industry. Um, very few in terms of the people who are involved, um, there are so many schools of jazz now and institutes of jazz, and there are a lot of students who are women now, but you don't see them breaking through um, uh, nearly as much as you hear uh, the young men, and they're nurtured by uh by the male powers, yes, it's still, it's a very, very macho industry, still. Although women are beginning to make breakthroughs, and I mean brilliant women, women who are really um, wonderful musicians and can hold their own with anybody. Um, but there's a, there's a bias, and the bias is upheld by some of the people who have the most power to break it. In the past two or three years, you've been working and performing with the Irish singer Mary McPartland, and uh, you've performed together in New York and in Dublin, and you've also played in, in Galway last year and returning now. What does this new connection to, to Ireland mean to you? I know you've played in, in Europe before and in Japan, but, but Ireland, I think, is new. Ireland is new, and um, for me, it's uh, it's a look also at my own ancestry because um, as I did some research on the songs um, that Mary um, was singing, I I realized there's a deep connection between the story element of the Irish ballad and the blues. And I mean, this is not new research. This is just something that I have, that is uh, I'm beginning to be aware of, because there have been several scholarly uh, studies about uh, the the Irish African connection. So. Um, I know that I have some Irish ancestry. I haven't been able to really trace it very successfully, but that's part of the connection for me is that uh, the the songs and their message um, is very much like um, the song and the message of uh, of the blues and its universality. And uh, the deeper connection is that it has inspired me to continue to dig to see what I can find out about my own, uh, about my own Irish uh, ancestry. Your, your father, it, Clifton Rosemond, was from South Carolina. Was it through his line, you think, that the, the Irish connection was there? I, no, I don't know of any Irish connection there. There's an American Indian connection on that side of the family. It's my mother's side of the family. Uh, my mother uh, was born in Kentucky, in Lebanon, Kentucky. And uh, she was raised in Nashville, Tennessee. 
And then she, um, that fa- the family moved to St. Louis, Missouri, and put down roots there. But my grandparents and great-grandparents um, on my mother's side were, um, were, were from Kentucky, and I know that there's a Scots-Irish connection all through, through those mountains. And um, there are very—that uh, th- th- side of the family is very, very, very fair-skinned, uh, green-eyed, red hair, very, very um, Irish-looking. And so, I mean, the elements of Ireland are, are in my family. I just don't know where the connections are, but it's, uh, it's intriguing to continue to dig. A lot of the people are gone now, of course. And uh, nobody talked about it too much in the family. It wasn't a family story that was handed down as um, her story, if you will, you know. So a certain sense of, of coming home uh, when you come here. Yes, in a way. And when I met Mary, we sort of just clicked as people, you know, with the, uh, just our personalities. Something about us just recognized something in each other. Bertha Hope, um, thank you so much for talking to us. And, and we really look forward to hearing you in, in Galway at the Galway International Arts Festival. Thank you so much. This was a pleasure. And let's hear another track from your album, Nothing But Love. Um, And this is Stars Over Marrakesh. over Marrakesh there Bertha Hope on piano Bertha Hope and Mary McPartland will be playing at Monroe's in Galway on Wednesday next as part of the Galway International Arts Festival tickets available at giaf.ie and from the Galway International Arts Festival box office that's it from us back next Monday night at 10 with a programme on folk art and the British folk art exhibition at Tate Britain in London join us then good night <laughs>